0: Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Dr. Marcus Collins is an award-winning marketer and cultural translator with one foot in the world of practice, serving as the chief strategy officer at & Kennedy, New York, and one foot in the world of academia as a very, very famous marketing professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Go Blue. David went to Michigan, my husband. His new book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be, gives readers the tools they need to inspire collective change by leveraging the cheat codes used by some of the biggest brands in the world. Marcus, I have heard about you for so long. I am so excited for you to be here, and I cannot wait for your book to come out in the world.
1: I'm so very grateful. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Already, it's awesome.
0: So the first thing I want to know is, what is a cultural translator to you?
1: So to me, a cultural translator is someone who identifies, acknowledges, and recognizes the cultural characteristics of one entity and communicates those characteristics in ways that another entity can understand. It allows for greater empathy from that second party to say, oh, I see the familiar and the strange, or in some cases see the strange in the familiar. And this translation helps me take what happens in the cultural practice of a group of people and translate it for brands to understand what makes them tick, the underlying physics of what governs their behavior, but then also take what the brand is all about and communicate its cultural characteristics to a given group of people, such that they're speaking to each other in a shared language. They understand each other. In that the way one group sees the world The community and the brand sees the world, they find that there's congruence between the two. And as a result, not only are they more inclined to consume, but they're more inclined to use the brand to communicate their identity because there's congruence between the two.
0: Correct me if this is incorrect, but doesn't it sometimes boil down to the people in the room might see it, right? The people who are making the marketing and advertising decisions for a brand might see it. But what about the existing audience of that brand?
1: Yeah. So this is an interesting bifurcation. I think you're right. There is the people that we want to reach and the people that are currently consuming. And those two people may not be the same. And for the marketer, we have to decide, well, who do we want to target? Do we want to target people who are currently consuming from us or people who see the world like us? And I would argue that while there's compelling arguments for both sides, for the longevity of the brand. The idea is to find people who see the world the way you do, because what is a brand for all? I mean, you're a brand specialist, so you know this, right? A brand is a signifier that conjures up thoughts and feelings in the hearts and minds of people, right? They're a vessel of meaning that conjures up affects and cognitions on behalf of a company, a product, institution, organization, entity, or a person. So meaning is this bar that we're trying to reach. It's what we're trying to achieve collective meaning that is congruence between what we intend to mean. What we actually mean the minds of people. If for our current customers, we are merely just coffee, then like, okay, if there's a better coffee, then people are willing to go to that one. We have a transactional relationship with those people based on what we do. But if we are, like you say about Starbucks, we are the third meeting place. This is a special consecrated place that you go. This will happen to serve coffee you have a higher meaning in people's minds. And the idea is that the people who see you at a higher fidelity than just the value propositions of the product, you have greater meaning. You're more likely to conjure up thoughts and feelings in their minds, which tends to lead to long lasting relationships as opposed to transactional relationships because your coffee is sweeter or hotter or more tasty because it sets you up for potential disruption if someone has a tastier, hotter, sweeter coffee.
0: So that all makes so much sense, and I agree like on a fundamental level. But it's interesting because since direct-to-consumer brands came on the scene, there's such a focus on growth marketing and click-to-buy and get those numbers in versus really the long-term equity that you put into a brand and that meaning and feeling yeah. So what would you say to newer brands today? How do you balance between, especially like if you have investors or your private equity and you have demands to sort of hit those numbers, how does brand and growth, how do they balance each other?
1: Yeah. You got to take a cue from DJ Rob Bass and, and Easy Rock. It takes two to make a thing go right. Like you take <laughs> the short term right now, and then you take the long-term brand approach right? Um, and Fields did a really powerful study for the IPA some years ago. They called the long and short of it. And we found that short-term activations and long-term brand growth works better together than either one of them by themselves. So while I am an advocate for growing brands, we want to establish relationships, absolutely. But you need something to hit today as well to stay in business so that you're there for the long term. So you invest in the shorter term growth opportunities. But if you're only focused on the short-term, you end up eroding relationships in the long-term. I right? think about this like dating. If I'm only focused on this date right now, I'm gonna do everything I can to optimize it. But in, in anything else, if I focus on the long-term, then I'm not thinking about what's happening right now today. It's a combination of the two that makes it work.
0: And when we think about brands who are trying to target new audiences, because, right, that's how you do stay around. You need to grow your audience. Audiences get older. Maybe they age out. How do you do that without alienating the people who sort of made your business?
1: Well, I think this is where branding at the onset is important. So we ask ourselves, well, who are the people that are best for us? Well, I would argue that the people who are best for us are the people that are most likely to move, the most likely to consume. Well, who are those people? What we know of everything in literature, what I know from my practice, is that the people who see the world the way you do are more likely to consume. They are the collective of the willing, because they're not consuming because of what you are, they're consuming because of who they are. And the combination of the two is how we get power. So from the onset, we should be asking ourselves, well, who are we targeting? We should target people who believe what we believe. Well, what do you believe? How do you see the world? You know, take Nike, for instance, because it's an easy one to do. Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. So who does Nike target? Athletes. Now, there are people who work in office buildings who wear Nike sneakers. Is that who Nike's talking to? No. He's talking to athletes or people who aspire to be athletes. And that relationship between athletes and Nike, it's consecrated because they see the world similarly. I think Phil Knight said it this way, that you know, Nike is the person under the street lamp where you're running in the morning and it's cold and it's wet and you're tired and saying, hey, keep on going. Like that's the brand. And the people who subscribe to that, they go, Nike is the brand for me. So what about all the other consumers who purchase Nike? Great. God bless you. I imagine the brand is saying, but who they're talking to, their people, the collective of the willing are people who see the world similarly. And their relationship is far tighter than just having better sneakers where people are just buying based on value propositions.
0: Good answer. Not that I'm surprised. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have this big-ass job, and then you also have this, like, cult following, if I may, at University of Michigan as a professor. What does your actual schedule look like? And, like, how do you balance both sides of that?
1: So I treat it like they rely on each other, like they're symbiotic as opposed to being binary. So not like there's the wine job, and then there's the Michigan job. For me, like they both inform each other. Like what I study and what I teach is what I do. And what I do is what I study. And what I study is what I do. And these things become cyclic in nature. They inform the other. And I'm a better professor because of the practice. And I'm a better practitioner because of the scholarship. So, you know, a day starts like I teach very early in the morning, much to my students' chagrin. <laughs> I teach at eight in the morning. And then I go right into wide in time and I'm you know, in the work. And then I teach in the evenings, much to my wife's chagrin. (laughs) So my world is sandwiched between the academia and the practice.
0: Let me just tell you, you are like a selling point. So my son is a senior in high school. My husband went to Michigan, Ross specifically. And we went for the day. And you are a star topic. You're not even in the room, which goes back to my book on brand. That is how you know you have a strong personal brand. When your name is dropped in a room, you are not in. So you were literally like the pitch. And so anyway, I just wanted you to know that.
1: That's a blessing. That's a blessing. But you know, it goes to meaning. I mean, I hope that my students in the university have an affinity for me, not because of what I do, but because of why I do it. In the words of Simon Sinek, like, I show up in the office at Wyden and in the classroom at Ross to help people realize their highest fidelity possible. Like, that's what I'm after. And that's what I want people to ascribe to me. Those are the cognitions and affects that I want conjured up when they think about me. And hopefully that helps establish a stronger brand for myself, right? A greater meaning vessel beyond, oh, he's a professor and an advertiser and a marketer and yada, 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 yada. But more importantly, uh, he helps people be the best versions of themselves.
0: And he also ran digital for Beyonce previous to this. So, I mean, that's definitely a plus.
1: That was really cool. And honestly, I'm just so grateful for it all. I find myself looking at my career in the rearview mirror and using that as a lens to look at everything in front of me. It just makes me just so grateful for every little win, every inch of positivity I'm super grateful for because those things don't just happen by happenstance. Like someone has to say, that's the girl. Or that's the guy. Or I'm going to give this person a shot. Yeah. Um, and Matthew Knowles did that for me at Music World, the record label and management company for Beyonce. And I was able to run digital strategy for arguably the biggest artist on the planet, which is just unbelievable and super cool. And that was, it was in the I Am Sasha Fierce days, which is a perfect time to be in the Beyonce business, right? Let's be honest. It's always a perfect time to be in the Beyonce business. Always, for
0: sure. But
1: that was uniquely powerful because she was evolving from being Beyonce to being Queen Bee and I got a chance to see that in a front row ticket to the show, if you will. And it was a really eye opening experience for me and very, very humbling to see someone work at that level of fidelity in, in her talent and potential.
0: What's the biggest learning you have from that time in your career?
1: I believe it's that we, as marketers, we don't create communities, we facilitate them. And this sort of, was a big learning for me work with Beyonce, but even greater in my career that I was always of the mind that we have a brand and we go create a community, a tribe around the brand in our temple. You come to us and get our content and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but work with Beyonce actually changed that perspective for me. So part of my job with her was to take her offline fan club and move it online. Right. There were many of us work on this, but it was part of my remit. And we set up this thing that we call it the Beyondtourage. It was a, this is like 2009. So, Facebook and Twitter were really breaking through as platforms for people descending. It's like, this is going to be an easy thing to do. Take her fan club that's offline and play online. We launched this thing, and it wasn't as successful as we thought it was going to be, considering Beyonce's stature, considering her star power. And the team kind of looked over the social web, like, what's going on? Why is this thing happening? And then we realized there was a community of people who had already descended, who already facilitated themselves or right? brought themselves together. They called themselves the beehive and they were connected, not just because they love Beyonce music, but they saw the world the way Beyonce does. They believed in women's empowerment and they had their own set of language. They had their own artifacts, their own behavior. They were a community with their own cultural contexts or their own cultural characteristics. So the team cut bait on the Beyonce and said, we're going to make the beehive our official fan club for Beyonce. And that's super powerful because for me, it taught me that you don't make communities, you don't build communities, you facilitate them. And then communities build from your facilitation. And that has changed the way I go about helping brands today. Instead of saying, hey, build a brand, let's go build a community for yourself. I go, there's probably people out there who see the world the way you do already. Let's go find them and let's go help them. Let's help them connect. Let's help remove the points of friction that keep them from doing things that they aspire to do. And when we do that, it will deepen our relationships with them and people will use the brand to communicate their identity.
0: Love that. So you are known for creating culturally contagious ideas for your clients. What is one of your favorite examples or what do you see as you look at your career as something that really speaks to a contagious idea?
1: One of my favorites is the Cliff Paul campaign for State Farm. So State Farm was heavily invested in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, and they were there because the audience was so big, especially with quote unquote millennials. That's what they were targeting at the time. We said to them, OK, you know, how might we best utilize the sponsorship? So we said, well, well, first of all, why is State Farm there? What does State Farm believe? Well, State Farm believes it helps people live life more confidently every day by making better decisions. How do they make better decisions? You have a State Farm agent, 2,700 State Farm agents across the country there to help you whenever, wherever and however you need it. They just so happen to provide insurance and financial services. You go, oh, okay, if that's what we're about, helping people, how do we use that as a way to enter the NBA? Well, there's an actual statistic in the NBA for helping people called the assist. And just like insurance the assist is more than just passing the ball to someone. Insurance is more than just covering your stuff. Like It's like seeing the floor. It requires great IQ to be a good insurance provider. So we said, all right, how do we leverage this thing about helping people? Help assist great way in. Well, who owns the assist? Well, usually the point guard in the NBA. And at that time, the biggest point guard in the league was Chris Paul. And we said, what if we Instead of targeting millennials, let's go after hardcore NBA fans realizing a truth that for those fans, they think they know everything about the game. Every statistic you think of, they know it. But what if we create a gap in knowledge, as George Lowenstein puts it? Put a gap in knowledge where they think they know everything except for this thing. And because this gap in knowledge induces cognitive deprivation that we put all of our cognitive energy to close the gap, people will lean in to want to know more, especially these NBA fans. And it would start discourse between themselves and the idea would propagate. So here's the gap in knowledge. Little known fact, Chris Paul has a twin brother named Cliff Paul, and they were separated at birth. Chris Paul went on to be an NBA all-star point guard. Cliff Paul went on to be a all-star State Farm agent. Of course, it's not real. And your face is exactly what we were trying to, to activate. <laughs> and people go, what? Wait a minute, what?
0: I totally fell for that. Wow. Okay, you're good.
1: <laughs> Especially hardcore NBA fans go, what? Wait a minute. No way this is real. And it will start discourse. <laughs> so, I mean, we pull out all the stops. We launched on Christmas Day, which is the highest viewing occasion for the NBA. Then we did an activation for All-Star Weekend, the second highest viewing occasion for the NBA. Then we rolled this entire campaign to make people believe that this thing was real. It's not real. But the fact that this gap in knowledge was created for people who really know everything about this sport, it created a cultural reverberation that this community of people began to talk. They began to talk to people outside the community and it became a massive success for State Farm, so much so that uh, the campaign ran for a couple of years and they still leverage Chris Paul in their work today.
0: I mean, there must be people out there who actually just didn't get the memo that it's not real.
1: Of course, of course. (laughs) Absolutely. And interestingly, it's not unlike the Blair Witch Project. You know, people thought it was real. So they went to go see the movie to see if it's real. They started talking about it to see if it's real. This is what we do. If we can leverage the cultural conventions and expectations of a group of people, those people will act in concert because people like them do something like this.
0: Perfect segue to your new book, For the Culture. For the Culture gives readers the tools they need to inspire collective change by leveraging the cheat codes used by some of the biggest brands in the world. Marcus has said it is the only book you'll need if you want to influence people to take action. And given this conversation so far, I would venture to say that is true. (laughs) This is your first book. Why this book, Write This Moment, for you?
1: There's two reasons. The first is that culture is the most influential force, external force of human behavior, full stop. And most people hear that and go, yeah, that sounds about right. I'd buy that. But if you ask five people to define culture, you get 25 different answers. And that's a problem, right? If we can't communicate something clearly, then we can't operationalize it. And if we can't operationalize it, how do we harness its power? That's a problem. So the first for practitioners is to provide them a Rosetta Stone, a language by which we can define culture and use culture to get people to adopt behavior, which I would argue is the core function of marketing. So the first is taking the abstraction out of culture and putting some meaning to it so that we can actually use it. We say this all the time as marketers. Get our idea out in the culture, make sure it's informed by culture, what's happening in culture. Culture, 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 culture. Now we have some (laughs) definition to talk about it. So that's the first. The second is far more personal. See, I grew up in Detroit, uh, born and raised had a penchant for math and science as a high school student. So for anyone who was in Detroit, who happened to be Black, did well in math and science, you study engineering because that's just what you did. At least those were the conventions of what it meant to be me or to be someone like me. So I studied engineering as an undergrad and I didn't necessarily love it, but I thought it was interesting. It's like, it was cool. It was fascinating, but I didn't necessarily love it. And after my first year, I came home and said, mom and dad, I don't think I want to be an engineer. They said, well, wait till you get into your, your major. You'll love it. My mother's a, an academic, so of course I trusted her. And I got into my major and I was like, oh man, I really don't think I love this at all. So I took <laughs> some music theory courses just to offset my terrible GPA and realize what I really loved was music. I played piano in church and sang in choirs, but never had this sort of rigorous exposure to music, especially music theory. I just fell in love with major sevens I came home. My sophomore year of college said, mom and dad, I know what I want to do. They said, out with it. Tell us. I want to be a songwriter. (laughs) Oh, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. And, you know, we fought the battle of Jericho that, that evening. And I lost. And I went back to school to finish my engineering degree. Then afterwards, I went into the music industry once I graduated. And what I realized some 20 odd years later is that what was happening to me was I was being influenced by the cultural expectations of people like me and Mm. it removed all agency like i didn't know what to do or how to push against it because i didn't really know what it was i didn't have the language to describe what was happening to me why i felt like i should be doing this and why there were social pressures telling me to do this but now that i have language i go oh those were the cultural expectations of people like me and therefore i was adhering to the social facts of people like me. But if I had better language to describe it, I would have better agency or more agency to navigate through it. So the book is meant to help provide people with language so they can articulate what they're experiencing, either in the social world that they navigate, be it their offices, be it their social group, their organization, their church, their family, and better navigate those interactions that we have with people so that they can live a life that's more congruent with who they want to be and how they see the world.
0: I love that. It's so funny when you were speaking and you were talking about the reason behind it. I was like, yeah, that's like the definition of parenting.
1: (laughs) That's That's right. I mean, and actually I talk about this in the book that, you know, this is not a marketing book, though. I'm a marketer. This isn't a marketing book. It's a people book. And if you have a vested interest in getting people to adopt behavior, to move, then this book is for you. And You know, I talk about marketing sort of in a wide lens that marketing is going to market to get people to move. Whether you're a marketer, you have that in your title, you're a leader, entrepreneur, a manager, an activist, a politician, a parent, we are constantly trying to get people to move. I'm constantly trying to get my kids to eat peas. It just ain't happening, right? So I leverage the cultural characteristics of our community to get them to move. I go, hey, we eat peas around here. You're a Collins kid. This is what we do, right? The social pressures in an effort to get through to adopt behavior in a certain way. And that's what got me through my undergraduate career as an engineer. Interesting enough, I guess this is ironic. Maybe it's not so ironic, but I actually practice marketing like an engineer. I look at marketing problems, look at briefs, and I'm always looking for the system. Like what's Mm. the system? What's the underlying physics that is driving a thing? Because if we can identify that, then we can unlock and unpack where the challenges are so that we solve the right problem.
0: So interesting, connecting the dots like that. When you're teaching your students, what is something you literally cannot emphasize enough? You're just like on repeat, you're going to drill it in their brains no matter how many times you have to do it.
1: And that's a great question because I beat the drum like nobody's business. I mean, constantly <laughs> on my drum. And it's a very, very simple, simple imperative. And no matter what class I teach, this is what I teach, perspective. Because things aren't the way they are. They are the way that we are. That is the way we see the world is how the world unfolds and manifests itself in our eyes. So the world isn't objective. It is subjective. So if we want the world to manifest differently, then we have to see the world differently. We have to adopt new lenses. So what I tell my students, whether you're an MBA, undergrad, or even exec education, I tell them the very best thing I can give you is perspective. A new set of lenses to help you see the world differently. Because if you see the world differently, then you will behave in the world differently. It's sort of like that scene from The Matrix. And I guess it's spoiler alert, but the movie's been out for like 24 years. So like- (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene from The Matrix where Neo, the main character, Keanu Reeves' character, is in The Matrix and he's talking to a kid and this kid bends the spoon with his mind. And Neo goes, whoa, how'd you do that? And the kid goes, you don't bend the spoon, it's you who bends. And this is exactly what I try to tell my students, that you don't change the world, it's you who change. And when you change, when you bend, the world changes as well. So if you want to learn more, You have to widen your aperture. You have to see the world through different lenses because the better you see the world, the more likely you will be able to navigate the world in a successful manner.
0: Great answer. Okay. What do you hope marketers stop doing?
1: Mm. I hope marketers stop stereotyping people by putting them in boxes that we call demography. I mean, demographics is the worst. It's sort of borderline racist in the way that it works. And it's racism at the most scholarly level, right? It's prejudging people based on physical traits, right? Their age, their race, gender, household income, geography, yeah. language. We use these things as a proxy for who people are, but they don't accurately describe who they are, right? We put people in boxes, not because it's real, but because it's easy, not because it's, Effective, but because it's efficient. I, mean, I talk about this in the book too, comes from this work that um, Daniel Kahneman talks about. It's that, you know, say, meet my friend Deborah. Deborah drives a minivan. Does Deborah have kids? Probably. Do her kids play sport? Soccer. And where does Deborah live? Suburbs. And we come to that conclusion in unison, right? I could have strangers in a room ask yeah. that question. And it's almost rehearsed how the responses come. Because we have the same box for women who drive minivans. She drives a minivan and she must have kids who play soccer and she lives on a cul-de-sac. Is that accurate? No. Is it efficient? Yes. And we do that for everyone. Take my demography, right? I'm 44 years old. I'm black. I'm from Detroit. Holla. Went to public schools my entire life. If a marketer saw that on a brief they would go, oh, he must walk like this, talk like this, hang out with those kind of people, or do this kind of thing because that's just what people do. And it sounds crazy racist to say it out loud, but that's what we do. All women love to shop. All men are dogs. No, your boyfriend's a dog, Ah. right? We put these boxes together to put people in, but they don't accurately describe who people are. And I think that if marketers start to look at human beings based on how they self-identify, how they see themselves in the world, we have a better chance not only connecting with them, but predicting what they're likely to do because who we are, our identity anchors how we see the world, the beliefs, ideologies that we hold, and the way we show up in the world, that is our behaviors, our artifacts, and the language that we use, which is expressed through cultural product. That is, we understand people based on their cultural subscription, not these boxes that we put people in. And the better we do that, the more likely not only will we see better results in our work, but we'll probably see greater connections between brands and human beings.
0: I love that. Okay. What's something in marketing that you cannot buy into and that you will never do?
1: Mm. Cannot buy into and never do. I cannot buy into the notion that people only buy for utility purposes. There's the Byron Sharp approach to the world, which actually, Byron Sharp is quite brilliant. And I Really dig a lot of things he talks about when it comes to memory structures and distinctiveness versus differentiation. But he has this penchant to disregard anything beyond that. And it's like, man, I'm with you. You had me. But people don't just consume because of functionality. We consume because emotional jobs to be done, the word of Clayton Christensen, and social jobs to be done, right? Like we consume, I would argue, as a cultural act as a way of signaling to the world who we are and also fitting into the world that we have curated for ourselves based on our identity, right? So it's not just that the razor is sharper, the battery lasts longer, the car goes faster. And I know that mark of ownership. It's about how it resonates in my heart and my mind and how these things influence the way that I behave. The marketers who are all about value propositions only, I just cannot get in the boat. Marketers who are just like, Just blast your messages as much as possible. So long as you have memory structures, then people are going to rock with those memory structures have to be relevant for a person, right? There are a lot of memory structures that I have about politics. I go, "Mm -mm, not for me, not that guy, not that woman, not that idea. I know them very, very well because I see them on repeat all the time. I have memory structures for them, but they aren't relevant for me. And therefore I don't consume, but the ones that are the ones that are more like myself I am more inclined to consume, not because of what they are, but because of who I am. I'm more inclined to vote for them, not because of who they are, but because of who I am. And who I am is congruent with who they are. And these people represent me in the way that I see the world.
0: Are there any new ideas left in the world?
1: (laughs) I think that, the Bible said, there's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) And I believe that. I believe that there's nothing like net new novel. I imagine science will reveal more things that we don't know. I mean, that's, you know, theory is sort of like uh, the best reputation we have of the world today. And the more we do research in an empirical way, the more we learn about the world. But I think that the newness that will come will be more so from context. The things have always existed. They've always been there. We just didn't have the lenses to see them. And as we get new context, we see things through new frames and therefore it manifests differently. But at its core, people are people. And as we get new technology, it extends human behavior based on what we've already done, right? Like Marshall McLuhan would say that the will extension of the foot, the glasses are extension of eyes, clothes are extensions of skin, computers are extensions of our brains. And I would say the social networking platforms are extensions of our real life social networks. Those things have always existed in humanity. They just manifest in new contexts. So at its core, nothing net new, but certainly new contexts in which they manifest.
0: Okay. This is probably a question that you get from brands all the time. What is your framework, your mental framework for deciding if a brand should Navigate conversations that are controversial, political, in the landscape, where like heading into an election year. Where do you sit on that subject?
1: I would tell a brand the first thing is to decide what's your conviction? What do you believe? Because your conviction is essentially the driving force that informs not only the products that you put in the world, but what you will weigh in on. What topics? you feel convicted to discuss. Because anytime that we voice our opinion, we voice our perspective, we run the risk of offending people or people not agreeing. People saying, nah, I thought you were this, you're not, I'm backing out. Like that's just inherent to expressing our points of view. So I tell brands that you should stand for something that you're willing to stand for, that you're willing to lose everything for. That's what conviction is, that no matter... If I'm the only one standing for it, I'm going to stand because I'm convicted. I believe in it that fervently. And so I tell brands, what is that belief? How do you see the world? Because the way you see the world will be the conviction that you hold. And then say, based on what's happening in the zeitgeist, then you decide to weigh in on it. But ask yourself, am I doing it to be heard or am I doing it to be seen? Oh, good If it's to be heard then my voice, my point of view is going to be meaningful to the discourse as we collectively make meaning as a society. To be seen, that's just for my own self-glorification. If that's the case, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But if you're doing it to be heard, it's like, I want to make a material difference in what I'm contributing to the discourse. Take a brand like Patagonia. Patagonia says, we believe in climbing clean. We believe in reducing are mitigating our impact on the planet. Awesome. Patagonia is willing to cut revenue opportunities. They're willing to part ways with clients. They're willing to sue the government. They're willing to forego riches for the Chenard family and give the company away because that's just how convicted they are. And the conversations they weigh in on are the ones that are aligned to the way it sees the world. That's massively powerful. So, marketers, we can't treat our marketing communications like law and order SVU. We're gonna pull it out the headlines no. and you're gonna jump in the conversations. No, no. Like join exactly. the conversation if it's meaningful, if you have something meaningful to say, because what the conversation is about is aligned congruent with how you see the world.
0: I love that answer. Okay, last question, and especially because you have a vessel for the culture coming out in the world that is permanent forever. (laughs) How do you want to leave your mark with this book?
1: My hope, my hope and prayer is that this book helps people see the world differently. And that if the world is socially constructed, that it's not objective, it's subjective, then your truth is not the only truth. your way of seeing the world is not the only way of seeing the world. And someone may see the world differently. That doesn't mean that they're crazy. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that it's different. Ergo, we would not only be better practitioners, right? That is, we don't look at the brief and just put our own biases on it, but we see it the world of the people we're trying to tap into. And therefore, we do a better job of serving them. But more importantly, in my mind, at least, when I think about legacy and the long lasting impact of what I put in the world is that we just be better human beings, that we be better members of society. We can look at someone and go, I don't agree with that, but I can see how they got there. I see how they got there. They're not like massively crazy. They're not like, these people are insane. He goes, these people see the world in ways I do not. They abide by a different meaning system. They abide by a different cultural governing operating system that not only influences how they see the world, but how they show up in the world. And in doing that, we can be a little bit more empathetic. Give a little bit more grace. It's not that we have to agree on everything. That's not the case. But we can't agree that like, to be human is to be heterogeneous. To be human is to see the world based on the cultural frames by which we make meaning. And if we have that, because we have language to describe that, maybe we'll be a little bit more civil towards each other.
0: Well, Dr. Marcus Collins, you did not disappoint. You delivered everything I expected today. Thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark. I am so excited to see your book in the world and I wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you so much. I'm super grateful.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Leave Your Mark. If you want more career advice or tips on personal branding, make sure to pick up a copy of my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Want to land your dream job or kill it in your career? don't forget about my first book, Leave Your Mark. If you want me to speak at your company or at an offsite, or if you need consulting services, please go to alizalick.com. I would love to connect with you there and on social media. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.